Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. All right, guys, welcome back to another week on the Red Light Report. For those who are longtime listeners, you'll recognize the name Dr. Praveen Arani. He's basically the resident photobiomodulation researcher of this podcast, it seems like, but <laughs> for those who are familiar, I'll go through a, just a quick uh, snippet of his bio for those that want to hear the first episode we did together uh, where I interviewed Dr. Arani. This, this was not intentional, but it was almost a year ago to the day that that podcast was released last June 2nd, where we go into photobiomodulation research, of course, and, and proper dosing amongst other topics. So go check out that episode if you want to dig into those topics with Dr. Irani. But just a little background on him. With his lab, the overall scientific focus is to identify key biological regulatory components that can be used in clinical studies to control biological outcomes. His research is predominantly focused on the molecular mechanisms and clinical translation of low-dose light treatments, termed photobiomodulation therapy, to alleviate pain or inflammation and promote tissue healing and regeneration. And I guess I should have prefaced all of that by saying Dr. Irani is one of the most well-respected researchers in the photobiomodulation researching game, so to speak. He's not just a random researcher I pulled out of thin air. Ever since I've interviewed him last year, I have a consistent influx of photobiomodulation research I have coming into my email thanks to PubMed. And it's been crazy how often Dr. Arani's name is attached to a lot of this research. And actually, a couple of days ago, he sent me a piece of research that, that we'll dig into a little bit here uh, in the interview. But I'll end my diatribe here and welcome Dr. Arani to the Red Light Report once again. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Yes, thank you for joining us. So, Dr. Arani, just what, what's been going on in the past year in the photobiomodulation research world? I mean, as, as I was telling the audience just a little bit ago, it's basically nonstop photobiomodulation research coming in, which is amazing. The, the interest continues to climb over, over the years, and this past year is no different. So, what have you been researching, and, and, and what kind of stuff are you excited about this past year? Yeah, well, thank you for having me again. And uh, this is always very uh, entertaining and informative because you get a lot of feedback on what we are doing in the lab and in our clinical research. So I think you made the point just now about how there's an increasing number of reports on photobiomodulation. And many people may not be aware of this, but there are over 300 different terms for the use of low-level light treatments. Uh, one of the most popular is uh, in this particular forum, red light treatment. The other other use of the terms low-level laser or low-level light or even cold laser treatment refers to the same form of light therapy. Interestingly, there is also some confusion between what is the light doing to the biological system. And that is why in 2014, we got together in Arlington, Virginia, and agreed that we would like to call this treatment photobiomodulation, which is now, uh, you mentioned PubMed, so PubMed uh, uses an archiving system where they hold all the scientific literature together. And photobiomodulation is the official term that PubMed uses to accumulate all, curate and archive all the information on, in this field now. And we like the term photobiomodulation because we're using photons and we are trying to modulate biological response. We are not trying to destroy you know, tumor cells or 
microbes, which is another form of light treatment called photodynamic therapy. And this is definitely not surgical lasers, right? So we're not trying to, you know, burn something or ablate something. So we don't do that in photobiomodulation. In fact, any form of heating is obviously not a part of photobiomodulation. Uh, the confusion, uh, I think, uh, going back to where the field is going, the confusion has been because you can get very nice warmth, right, with infrared lights and saunas, is that also photobiomodulation because you're feeling better? At least at the molecular level and the biological level, it turns out that the heat generation is not photobiomodulation. So and uh, we actually have a specific temperature uh, between 42 and 45 degrees where the photobiomodulation response starts to taper off. Yeah, everyone here who's familiar with uh, low-level light or photobiomodulation talks about the Arndt-Schulz curve, where you have an optimal dose and too much dose is not effective. It is not bad for you. You can't do harm with it, but you will start negating your therapeutic benefit. So turns out that threshold is defined by the temperature change. And it's been very exciting that now we have a threshold and that allows us to do more reproducible and predictive clinical treatments. Interesting. So the Arndt-Schultz curve, uh, which I typically refer to as the biphasic dose response, you're saying that's more predicated on the warmth or heating of the tissue versus the amount of joules, or are those two intertwined? They are intertwined. So normally you define joules as the ability to increase temperature. Okay. Right? That's how we define the uh, amount of energy. And turns out that too much energy, at least for photobiomodulation, is limited by the tissue temperature. And we try to make this analogy. Many of us, all of us are familiar with the fact that we get fever, right? We get fever, but we never get like 120 degrees of fever, right? It never happens because the biological system is incapable of handling above 102, 105, right? That's the maximum you will get a temperature and then the whole all the system shut down. So the biological system is wired to respond physiologically to a given range of temperature and beyond which it does not actually do well. It may not necessarily cause harm, but it will start negating your benefit. And that's one of the counterintuitive things about red light treatment or photobiomodulation is people who are trying to maximize the benefit are actually going to be most useful if you did not overdose in the, in the, in the subject. So uh, it's a little counterintuitive because we normally think more is better, but this is one treatment where you want to actually use optimal or less uh, maybe repeated less in some cases uh, to make it better. Yes, and I appreciate you bringing that up, you know, right off the bat, because we do get into this mindset that more is better. And I've always preached because based on the research I am reading and a lot of it that you're doing, more is not better. And actually less is going to give you better results, which to your point is so counterintuitive. And it's tough for <laughs> for our mindsets to not want to do more because we got this result with this much. So maybe if I do a little more, I'll get better results and so on and so forth. So thank you for bringing up that point. As it relates to the Arndt-Schultz curve, that's treatment dependent, right? So that curve is going to vary whether you're treating the skin or the thyroid or the brain. And that's another point I'd love for you to kind of go down a little rabbit hole and, and kind of detail for us is how would a person know where that curve is? And I'm glad you also brought up the point that even if you do overtreat or overdose, I think overdose is kind of a heavy word, but it's it's a safe and effective treatment. You're not going to do any harm. You're just not going to see the benefit. And that's one of the aspects I love about red light therapy is that it's so safe and effective. And even if you misuse it, you're, you're not going to have any negative ramifications. But again, back to this kind of moving target, depending on what you're treating, give us a little more detail about how a person 
person, a lay person who's just buying a red light therapy product, how are they going to know how to use red light therapy most effectively based on that movie and biphasic dose response? That has been one of the biggest problems with the field is that people read all these fantastic research and clinical reports or even go to conferences and hear about this. But when they try it for themselves, they don't get as much benefit, right? And that, that has become a growing reason why there is skepticism in the field that this, you know, this is not real. But the problem is not the tool, right? Light is basically your tool. It's how you use that tool. You can use a, you know, a pen to write a poem and you can write, uh, you know, I don't know, declaration of war with a pen, I guess. So it's how you use that tool that makes the big difference. And that's where light treatment is. To your point about is the Arnschulz curve, that's a really nuanced point, what you're bringing up, which is, is the Arnschulz curve actually standard for every treatment? And it helps with the marketing. And I, I'm, you know, I'm an academic researcher, but I appreciate that I'm not actually bringing the treatment to our patients and our population. It is the device makers. So they are important stakeholders in the, in the process of bringing PBM forward. But they do, I think, take the short route forward because it's easy to do two things. One, uh, explain light treatment, red light treatment, photobiomodulation as something that is energizing your biological system, right? Mitochondria is the energy house of the cell, and you put light inside, which is a form of energy. You're transferring energy. That makes so much intuitive sense. And, and I like it because it, it's simple, it's easy to say, and easy to understand. Unfortunately, that is not the entire truth. Right? So there is a lot more nuanced uh, mechanism. There are lots of intricate mechanisms, including how can light relieve pain? How can light relieve inflammation and promote stem cells and tissue healing? Very, very different biological responses. So if you think about it that way, the Arnschulz curve, although we talk about it as like the universal dose, it is actually a range of doses. And where you fall within that range, uh, the range is pretty well set. It's between you know 0.1 to 10 joules in most cases. Very rarely do we go higher than that uh, to actually get a useful uh, therapeutic benefits clinically. In the lab, obviously, we go to much more extremes. But in clinical scenarios, it's very rare to go beyond that. What I think is not very clearly uh, communicated in these protocols is that what is your irradiance, which is the power density, and what is your time of treatment, right? So if you're lying in a red light bed, you're going to get very different dose compared to a helmet or a handheld. Which, has, which was our recent study. And we were very surprised, actually, how forgiving PBM can be, how you know you can still get a therapeutic response within a large range of doses. So uh, you're absolutely spot on. I think the Arnschulz curve universally is a range, but for each treatment that you're trying to do, whether it's concussion in your head, whether it's Alzheimer's, whether it's uh, you know mucositis in the mouth, arthritis in the knee, it is surprising that a single treatment can address all of these things. But then again, all of these diseases have the same pathophysiological responses. They have pain, they have inflammation, they have an aberrant immune response, and they have a lack of healing, all of which is fundamentally addressed by the light treatment. And it is not, again, by a single mitochondrial mechanism. So there are now three broad categories of mechanisms that we very, very well understand. It's published. Everyone in the field who works on it is aware that besides the mitochondria, which is obviously pioneering work by Tina Carew and uh, uh, Harry Whelan's group, Margaret Von Riley, and they did the pioneering work where they showed that mitochondria is one of the receptors for the light energy. And if you energize that with the right wavelength and right dose, wavelength being color, you can actually stimulate the resilience and fitness of the cell, individual cell. So obviously the entire organ and the person benefits from that. 
But besides that, when we talk about photobiomodulation treatments for pain relief, we now understand that neurons, the cells that actually convey the pain signals, have these very specific receptors which are light sensitive. One of the well-known ones is TRPV1. And when you shine light with the right dose and the right color, you can actually inactivate neural conduction, very similar to local anesthesia. Completely reversible, completely safe, but provides immediate relief. And, and you will hear several, I'm sure you have several cases yourself, but you keep hearing of people who get treated in the clinic or on the bed or on the chair, and they say that, you know, right now it's been painful for a long time, but now it's completely gone, and that's a, it's like a miracle. Right? So that's uh, great, and I think that now we understand some of the molecular mechanisms around that. The third mechanism, which I think uh, is more related to what we do personally uh, in my lab, is to try and direct tissue healing and uh, endogenous stem cells. So all of us have lots of stem cells in different parts of our body. But uh, it turns out that photobiomodulation is one of the languages in which we can communicate to these cells and tell them that they are required for healing. So whether it's a skin wound, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, there's some very elegant work from uh, Dr. Yuri, uh, Yuri Uron, uh, who showed cardiac myocardial infarction healing as well as liver damage that can be healed by mobilizing bone marrow stem cells. So it turns out that light could be one of the languages in which the stem cells in the body can communicate the, the tissue healing responses. Well, guys, BioLite has what's called bundles. So simply go to the BioLite website, BioLite.shop, go under products, and there will be a tab for bundles. With each of these bundles, there's three of them, you save 20% off on the entire package. For example, we have the Beauty Bundle, which includes a Shine and Stand, a Guardian Plus, and the Longev Revive Cream. So that bundle of three products, you save 20% off the entire package. There's the Recovery Bundle. That includes the Recharge Plus panel, the Guardian, mouthpiece and then the Longev Recover Cream. And that Recover Cream is just like the Revive Cream except it has added CBD oil infused into it. That package of three items all comes at 20% off. And then the last bundle, which is the most versatile bundle in the sense that you get to pick and choose what products you want, you get to pick and choose from the Recharge Plus panel, the Restore Plus panel, or the Matrix Full Body Mat. And then you get to choose between the Guardian and Guardian Plus. And then you get to choose between the Revive and the Recover Cream. It also includes the shine and stand so you get to choose between black and silver by purchasing those four products in the ultimate bundle you save 20 percent off all of the products you also save 20 percent off shipping so literally the entire package and shipping is 20 percent off so if you're ever needing some red light therapy products and are looking for a discount just remember the bundles are always 20 percent off 365 days a year no coupon code necessary interesting so just a quick review those three mechanisms the mitochondria, which we're all familiar with, stimulating certain nerve cells. And one of the examples is as an anesthetic, right? And then stem cells. So we got mitochondria, nerves, stem cells are our three big mechanisms for how red light therapy can do all these wonderful things. And now it is well established. So these are all published papers. Some of them are almost seven, eight years out now. So we have been doing a lot of follow-up studies and other groups, not just our group. So there are several groups that have found complementary evidence this is true. And, and again, the field is now better aware of why we are seeing this broad range of therapeutic. It sounds unbelievable that a single treatment can do all these cool things, right? Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, concussion. And it turns out that because it's addressing that very fundamental disease process, uh, pain, inflammation, lack of healing, it is able to shore up that. It may not cure it in every case, but it's a definitely an important adjunct in many of these treatment protocols. 
Definitely. And and just going back to the Arnold Schultz curve, so you're saying we have a standardized range based on, like you said, I think 0.1 to 10. Is So are you saying that's the range for everything, meaning all, so all treatments fit underneath that versus there being, let's say, an individual curve for treating the brain, an individual curve for treating the skin, because we know skin takes very little, just like the eyes, takes very little. You're, you're saying that the eyes and the skin would be very far on the left side, whereas the brain and nervous tissue and those deep, deep structures are on the far right and because they require more joules of energy. Absolutely spot on. So you okay. need more energy on the surface to actually get to your target. So in case of brain or your heart or your knee or your back, right? So all these are deep-seated tissues that need more energy on the surface so that you can actually get enough energy at the source. Many, many new techniques have started to triangulate different uh, light sources. So you have, you know, just like we do fractionated radiation dosing, uh, we are trying to do light treatment dosing with different uh, probes that are pointing to the right amount of energy. There are also robotic arms that can scan different areas, right? More high-power energy that is continuously moving. You can take a high-power energy source and scan it in a, either a raster manner or a circular manner and not get heat generation because you're moving so quickly. And a lot of, uh, you will hear about a lot of skilled PBM practitioners who inadvertently during the treatment are moving the probe when they're doing these treatments. And some people like class four lasers, some people like class three lasers. That's a whole different uh, discussion. But uh, the point being that uh, with a laser, you can actually cause damage very quickly, right? So you have to be a lot more active in terms of your dose distribution. And LED is much more forgiving because it doesn't cause that much damage. So, and again, this is this, there is this whole debate in the field whether the take-home LED devices are something that should be regulated. And I believe it is not going to be because you can't, you know, regulate, you know, table lamps and your light sources all around. So the good news is that the LED PBM devices will be readily available. They are a little less efficient, but they do a great job because they're more forgiving in many overdosing scenarios. The laser, I think, will remain limited to clinical treatment centers and by, you know, practitioners who are uh, appropriately certified and trained because the damage threshold is much lower. And uh, even if it's a little more efficient, it's a question of risk versus benefit. Definitely. No, that brings up a good point. And kind of a question I had for you is we know that lasers are much more high powered. And like you said, it requires a much shorter duration to, to see the effect. And it doesn't take much longer before you could potentially see some damage. But just in general, does the speed of treatment matter? Let's say I'm trying to treat the same thing, gut health, with a laser versus LED. Does the speed of the treatment matter or is it all about getting the correct, again, dosage that matters? That's a great question. And that actually goes very well into the, uh, I think what I would love to discuss further is how do we dose the patient, right? Or dose the uh, subject. And when you look at the equation for Let's take a simple example. Three joules is one of our favorite numbers, right? So we love to do things at three joules for wound healing and for pain relief at slightly higher dose, like six joules or something, depending on the scenario. So we love to use the term joules per centimeter square or joules uh, period to define the amount of energy. And when you look at that equation, it is defined by two major variables. One is the power density, which is usually milliwatts or watts per centimeter square. And the other one is the treatment time. There have been several good, rigorously done scientific reports that have shown that you can reciprocate that in a given range and still get the benefit. You can reduce irradiance, increase time, or increase radiance, reduce time. But the threshold that we talked about in Arn Schulz curve is also important here. 
So a lot of people prefer using uh, near-infrared or mid-infrared wavelengths, like, uh, for example, 1064 or 940 or 980 or 810, which is extremely popular, versus people who like to use visible light, 660, 457, blue, green, red. And the difference is that when you're using these two different wavelengths, you're going to get different amounts of tissue penetration. The red light doesn't go in much, but it's depositing maximum energy in the superficial layer. So great for wellness and other kinds of treatment. But if you want to treat the knee and you want to treat you know, the back, people prefer to use infrared because you can actually get more energy deeper inside the tissue. This has been, again, another reason why there has been inconsistency in the field. Because what people have not usually reported uh, or not thought about is which wavelength of light they're using. Because if you look at the near-infrared light sources, let's say 1064, that has very, very low energy per photon. Even though it's going much deeper, it is actually very low energy per photon. And if you look at red or blue, they are much, much more energetic photons. So in the latest version of the World Association of Photobiomodulation, VAULT, recommendations, we have started accounting for the wavelength energy. And this concept is called photonic fluence where you add the amount of electron volts per photon, it adds one more variable to your dose calculation, but it actually makes it more predictive. So if you like, for example, you know, red light treatment and you're using 660, and I try to do the same treatment at 1064, I would actually need to do a lot longer treatments to get the same amount of energy, assuming I'm still in a non-thermal range. So I don't want to cause heat generation. So to go back to your specific question, can you vary that? Absolutely. How do I vary that and still get a responsive clinical outcome is the key. And, and for that, you need to be within that range of threshold, the same range that the Anschutz curve actually outlines. Okay, that brings up a couple of questions, and, and that's a really good clarification on your part, so I appreciate that. Is there less energy with a longer wavelength because it loses photons as it's penetrating deeper tissue? Because the longer the wavelength, the deeper it penetrates, right? So Again, is, is it losing photons as it's traveling through tissue and that's why it has less photons or is there a different um, energetic reason perhaps? Right. So I think the analogy we give is that 1064 or let's say infrared photons are like grapefruits, like they're really, really small energy per photon molecule. But when you look at a red, which is like an orange, and if you look at blue, it's like a watermelon. The amount of energy per particle, per photon is much higher in a blue compared to a red compared to an infrared. That's just inherent to individual photons. And normally it doesn't really matter when you think about these kind of visible and near-infrared light. It is usually not a big deal. But turns out, like we were discussing earlier in the talk, photobiomodulation occurs in a very, very narrow threshold or dose range, the Anschutz range. And even this little amount of energy that is varying between these different photons turns out to be really, really important. So it's actually an important part of the dose calculation. Gotcha. It complicates things a little bit, but to your point, it makes it more accurate for, for people trying to replicate it. The other question I had, kind of on the topic of basically laser versus LED or quote-unquote higher-powered LEDs versus quote-unquote lower-powered LEDs, and we can talk about that a little later, but is it true to say, this is just my mind working, and I've, I've kind of been saying this to the audience, and so I guess you can tell me if I'm right or wrong here, a lower power device, I've even seen, seen the Thor bed, I think, it has like a low, low light irradiance, which is diametrically opposed to this red light therapy consumer market. I don't know how familiar you are, where a lot of companies are touting 
they have the highest light irradiance. So their products are the best. So again, when you look at one of the top companies in the world, Thor, and their bed is like a really, really low light irradiance, that kind of had me wondering or thinking, well, they're probably onto something. And then that got me down the rabbit hole of, well, if the light irradiance is lower, that gives you much more lenience or much more forgiveness to meet your quote unquote dosage. Whereas with a laser, like you said, you could go under it and over it in in the flip of a finger or snap of a finger. And then not far behind that, you could reach tissue damage. So is it right to think that kind of a low and slow approach will, again, be more lenient and, and probably lead you to get your beneficial dosage more consistently versus the, the, the laser, which you have to be very fine-tuned to know what you're doing to get that beneficial dosage? Is that kind of the right mindset or the right path? Yeah, I think it's absolutely spot on. It needs to be further validated in a clinical study. But that is what I think most of our research is pointing towards, that low is better, even if you have to do multiple sessions, right? A lot of people actually end up coming multiple times to get a real benefit. But uh, most of our patients within a week, we will know two or three sessions. We know that they're going to respond and they're going to respond well. And even if they don't respond, then rather than going up, we actually dose down, which is a little counterintuitive, but that works really well. To your point about most of the devices that are much, much higher uh, energy, it makes you feel great, right? You talk to anyone who's been in one of these other beds, which are higher power, when you step out, you feel really great about yourself because you basically were in a sauna, right? You were in, a, in an area that was causing heat. And heat is good for you. We know that low heating makes you, you know, vasodilates your vessels and makes you much more improve circulation, local circulation. And you feel that euphoria after you do, you know, this kind of treatments. And, and people confuse that with a PBM benefit. And, and there have been, I receive questions almost every week about, can I combine this with PBM? If this is not PBM, then can I combine this with PBM? And the answer is absolutely yes. And you can do PBM at a very low dose. And after you're done with the PBM session, you have a short window, uh, a break, and then you do your uh, you know, sauna treatment or heat treatment. And you can get both the benefits. There is no reason why you can't benefit both ways. But if you try to do you know, a single session and you want the PBM benefit, then you're actually negating it. There's no harm, but you're negating the PBM benefit. So just for clarification, you're basically saying with an infrared sauna, if you're utilizing one of those panels that companies tout that you can put inside and kind of get both benefits at the same time, you're saying you're probably not actually getting the benefits you want from red light therapy and you should actually uh, do them separately? I agree. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. You might actually be losing out because uh, the combination, some of it is marketing, but some of it is actually based on real science where if you combine them, a lot of people combine a visible light and an infrared light because they can treat a larger volume of tissue, right? The visible light is hitting sure. the top part and the infrared is going deeper. So you get a larger volume of tissue being treated, which is great. But if at any point you have exceeded the thermal threshold with either, and remember the top part gets both the wavelengths going through. So that is getting twice, if not more, energy because that area is being transited by both the photons. So as long as you are not in the thermal range, you will get PBM benefit. The problem is people continue doing that treatment and then they start, they feel nice because they're feeling warm, but you are negating your PBM benefits at that point. So it's the heat of the sun. So, so at what point or at what temperature, I think you said in the 40s, that's Celsius, I would take it, right? So what is that uh, Fahrenheit, if, if you know off the top of your head? Between 98, 97 to 98. So is that like skin temperature or how would a person know that they've kind of 
gone past that threshold? Like, is the person sweating at this point, or 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 how would you it should know? Not be, it should definitely not be sweating. You might feel a little warm. And again, in in the lab setting, we kind of do a lot of uh, you know uh, careful thermal measurements uh, that may not be conducive in every scenario. But the minute that you start feeling warm or you know you start to sweat, you're already exceeding that air zone of thermal comfort, and you might feel nicer because you know you're feeling warm. But that is you've already crossed the PVM threshold. So especially I'm thinking about a bed, not the handheld. Handheld, I think people are very careful. Right? The minute they feel any discomfort. Especially with a laser unit, you you know you have to stop or you know move. So yeah, I think it's it's still not a precise science in a clinical scenario, but in the lab setting or a controlled clinical research setting, we have absolutely nailed down forty five degrees to be precisely the temperature where uh, you actually start seeing at the molecular level you start seeing stress at the molecular level. You can actually measure stress. That's interesting. That I'm really glad you brought that up, Doctor Arani, because. That's something I was not aware of, and I get asked all the time about red light therapy and infrared sauna, whether it's like, which one is better, should I use them together? And so for you to definitively say, to get the best results, yes, you want to do them both, but do them separately. So that's a really good point. Sticking along the lines of of kind of the clinical aspect, are there any other inconsistencies or ways that you see red light therapy not being being effective based on your work in the research? Why is red light therapy not clinically consistent or effective, I guess, is the question. Yeah, so I think the the biggest thing that we have identified, this is a little frustrating because we know it has so many different benefits, right? And it's been a little frustrating to hear people saying, oh, we tried it, but it doesn't work. And the reason, again, like I, we were started initially speaking, it's a tool, right? It depends on how you use that tool that you will get a benefit, whether you're a clinician, whether it's a home use device. And that is where there is a little bit of uh, complexity in how light interacts with matter. So this is where it becomes a little more, you know, geeky and nerdy and <laughs> the stuff that we love to talk about, but it's a little complicated. So the photon, when it interacts with tissues, is a non-linear phenomena. It's not like you put two in and you'll get two or four at the other end. It actually becomes five or seven or 12. It's a non-linear process. And that's where it's a quantum process. So that, that's where it gets a little complicated in terms of like energy transfer for this particular response. And it used to be all absorption-based, which is pretty easy to understand. You know, you get one amount of energy transferred, you get so much absorption, you get so much change. But unfortunately, it is not that linear anymore in our understanding of the process. So one of the reasons we think that PBM or light treatment has not been consistent has been a lack of understanding what are you trying to accomplish, right? Are you trying to reduce pain? Are you trying to reduce inflammation? Are you trying to improve healing? And that is your target. It's like a diagnosis for a patient, right? You need a diagnosis to do the right treatment. If you just do, you know, any treatment, how do you hope to cure cancer versus, you know, relieve fever? That completely different things. So unless you have a diagnosis or your clinical or biological context, it doesn't make sense that we are hitting light at the same dose for everything. And that's one of the nuances that I think we know now is important. And how much energy you need for each one of these, going back to your original question about is there an arm shoulds for each one? And I think the answer is yes. Do we know all of them? Unfortunately, not yet. We know them for some of them. For example, for oral mucositis uh, in cancer treatments, photobiomodulation is considered standard of care. Every cancer patient should be getting photobiomodulation before they get chemo or radiation or transplants, bone marrow transplants. It has been unequivocally shown by a systematic review and meta-analysis that this treatment improves the resilience of your normal cells. And when you hit them with chemo radiation or transplants, 
they are more fit, they're more resilient to fight that damage. And therefore, you get less mucositis, which is basically inflammation or wounds of your oral lining or your GI lining. And therefore, you have less complications, which is great for cancer patients, because then you can not only fight the cancer that is wrecking your body, but you also can have to fight the treatment, which is also trying to, you know, do a lot of damage. Gotcha. I just want to clarify one thing before we go further. Yeah. Uh, I looked up the Fahrenheit and Celsius conversion. So uh, normally being 98 to 99, 100 degrees would be the room temperature. So anything above 107 to 110 Fahrenheit would not be PBA. Gotcha. Well, thanks for that clarification. Thanks for looking that up. Back to the point you were just talking about. So you said that for oral mucositis, red light therapy has become the standard of care, which is great to hear. And you explained why. Are there any other conditions or utilizations where red light therapy is the standard of care or where you see it becoming the standard of care in the near future? So uh, this oral mucositis thing was done very recently, but few, uh, I think almost a decade back, there was already evidence from systematic review and meta-analysis that back pain, tennis elbow, and pain in uh, the neck is actually being shown with systematic review and meta-analysis that it is as good, if not better, than NSAIDs to treat these conditions. Now, we know that, you know, back pain is like a large catch-all diagnosis, right? It can be, you know, a spinal cord impediment from disc derangements to actual muscle pulls or spasms to neurological or inflammatory conditions. So to put everything into a single category and say that, you know, light treatment works for them is a little ingenuous, right? So it's not truly a good treatment. So now we're trying to fine-tune what exactly causes that damage. And we know that things like, uh, you know, disc impingements will not get corrected by doing light treatment alone. You will need surgery in many cases, especially in severe, severe cases. But what it seems to do is bring in the range of motion. So in mild to moderate cases, it removes that inflammation from that area or reduces it so that you bring back your range of motion, which in itself allows the body to heal. So in many of the situations where there is demonstrated clinical efficacy of, you know, light treatments, it is not that it might be correcting the anatomical or the physiological defect, but it is relieving the biological response, which is very fundamental to all of these things. So it, it is definitely an adjunct in many of these treatment protocols. In some cases, it might be adequate as the mainline treatment. Gotcha. And I'm glad you brought up the whole back pain and how if it's a structural issue, like red light therapies or photobiomodulation is not going to alter the structure per se. It may help with some relief temporarily, but likely you're going to have to have other interventions to help out with that. Uh, and I bring that up because a couple of weeks ago, uh, or several weeks ago at this point, I had someone on and she uses red light therapy pretty heavily in her practice, especially for concussions, because that's something she specializes in. And she was saying that she was able to, I believe, basically get rid of like an osteophyte just with red light therapy. And she was speaking about some sort of breaking up calcium deposit benefit of red light therapy, which I had never heard of to that point. And to be quite frank, I haven't looked it up since then. So now that I have you on the call, is, is there something behind that? Does Is there that potential for red light therapy to break up osteophytes and, and bone spurs? Yeah. So it doesn't sound feasible with the amount of light that you're depositing. And that would be your natural answer from any orthopedic surgeon or any bone specialist will tell you that the amount of energy you're using, you cannot truly destroy that osteophyte or any kind of bone spur. But I, we give this analogy when we talk about this kind of stuff, where if you have a clinical response, clearly something is benefiting the patient, right? You can't argue with patients getting better. So we've been trying to understand this paradox, if you will, that you have depositing energy, which is really, really low, 
how can you be destroying you know like in this particular case osteophytes so the best example for that is what happens when we get an infection when you have a bacterial infection and you take an antibiotic an antibiotic is not going to hunt down every bug and kill it that doesn't happen right all it does is it reduces them to a level at which your macrophages and your lymphocytes and your neutrophils will kick in and actually take care of business that is exactly what we are trying to do with light treatment so we are trying to kick start the body's endogenous healing response and if there is a pathology the bone spur should not be there let's start with that right so so it, it will figure out that if you remove that immediate response the normal osteoclasts and osteoblasts will come in and remodel that area and we know that osteoclasts come from macrophages and monocytes so when you have that inflammation in the right area you can actually take care of that business so again this is something that we try to rationalize how uh, such a low power of energy is able to do something like that but there is evidence in the lab that this is real so we have done several studies where we study different types of cells monocytes macrophages endothelial cells mucosal keratinocytes and we have found that each one requires different amounts of energy to actually do its business right and when you do light treatment you're exposing all of them to light so how do you know which one needs that light and what dose it needs so we are we are reaching that level of precision where we are at in the lab where we can talk about how we are modulating these processes some of this is still research that we are still trying to understand for interesting so you're saying in this instance with a bone spur the red light therapy or the the red or near infrared light stimulates the immune system hence the macrophages which activate the osteoclasts which break down bone and that's how it can happen you're again you're just activating the systems uh, the innate endogenous systems to heal yourself in light as the activator yep absolutely and the best evidence for that is uh, in, in i'm a dentist by training so we have this treatment for pbm where we can accelerate tooth movement right it's it's similar to distraction osteogenesis for the limb but we make osteotomy cuts or we just use you know uh, mechanical braces to move those teeth faster and when you do pbm during that process they have found that not only can they reduce the pain by reducing pge2 levels that cause that inflammatory pain response they have also found that it increases consolidation which is the osteoclast osteoblast activity so that the teeth that are moved remain where they have moved right so for that you need bone formation and bone turnover for that to happen and we know that pbm is capable of doing that so i was trying to make a you know a, a parallel thing of what we are seeing with, we have not worked with bone spurs but the process is still the same well sticking around in the teeth i mean i was going to ask you this but since we're there is there a potential for red light therapy to remineralize your teeth for those that have erosion or, or other issues yeah so there is some evidence that that is true uh, if you think about how teeth are formed and how they remineralize it's a chemical reaction right so you have to get the ions usually fluoride calcium ions in the saliva spit to actually get redeposit that uh, surface so there is some evidence that if you lower the energy barrier with light you can actually promote the forward reaction and therefore remineralize it better this is not bleaching so we always we are doing some new research that we presented recently and um, there is evidence that actually you can improve the amount of remineralization with this process the laser or a light process we don't call it pbm obviously because there is no uh, specific uh, rationale here for that but it is a light based treatment that is actually right. okay very interesting well i'll be excited to see any new updates as those come out over the next year or two or three this is one of the 
main questions I wanted to ask you, and I discussed this several weeks ago, or maybe last month, time flies, I don't remember, about the issue in the red light therapy consumer market. So I don't know if you even pay attention to that or if you keep an eye on it, but it has come to my attention relatively recently, as I admitted to the audience, I've been a culprit of this for for several years now with BioLite, but virtually all red light therapy companies grossly over promote or over um, estimate their light irradiances. And this has been verified by people that do their own third-party testing with the correct equipment, because I know a lot of people measure with solar meters, and that's kind of a a discussion for a different day, or, or, or maybe it's part of the discussion. But my point being, companies are promoting that their light irradiances are 100, when in reality, they might be 70 or 80. Others promote that it's 150, and again, this is light irradiance, milliwatts per centimeter squared. Some are saying 150, and again, it's like down in the 60s or 70s. Some even tout 180, 190 uh, light irradiance, when when in reality, it's actually a third. And again, the consumers don't know this because they're looking at all these companies' websites and, and they're listing their light irradiance, so it's like, okay, well, it must be 100, it must be 150. And to, our, uh, to your point with our conversations today, Light irradiance is is one of the variables, but a very important variable for dictating your dosage. So if you're leaning on these numbers, which have been verified to be false, and again, I don't know if it's intentional or if it's ignorance on the part of the company or the manufacturer, you are under-treating, which I guess in the context of our conversation, again, it's not a bad thing, but I guess it comes down to an integrity morality thing that you're purchasing a device thinking it has this light irradiance when it doesn't. So all of that to say, I would love to hear from you, what could we, as as companies in the red light therapy market, how can we raise the standard and become more, um, I guess, accurate and honest with light irradiance specifically? So that's a great point and a very important point. So we've been, uh, I mean, we do all this elegant research and monocular stuff and clinical trials, but at the end of the day, the devices, which is the front-facing field, is actually not benefiting because all of that research is not being translated into actual good products, and which are reliable and safe. I've worked with several organizations, and we have tried to basically focus on how do we ensure that when they say something, let's say 100 milliwatts, it's actually 100 milliwatts, right? So FDA very recently came out with guidelines for some of the PBM devices, mostly laser-based devices. I think would be directly impacted. But the other regulatory agencies is NIST, right? National Institute of Standards and Technology. And they don't have a guideline yet for PBM devices, whether lasers or LEDs. And again, we have tried to petition to them saying that this is a sorely needed uh, guideline or a regulatory document that we could use. In lieu of that, we have tried to start some testing services. And the one that we have been, I've been directly involved with is at the PBM Foundation at uh, Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And we are starting something in Buffalo very recently. So hopefully, uh, as a third-party service, we can try and validate some of the claims and give the customer more confidence that this is real. But you pointed out the, a really, really important point, which is like if they don't deliver the irradiance that they promise or they advertise, they are already starting with an undermined you know, calculation and a device. And then it goes even worse because they are not going to use it in contact. Most of them are going to use it little bit distance away. And we know that even a short distance away, that energy, the power density falls dramatically, one over R squared. So it falls almost four times every time you go a unit further and further away. 
So you're getting a lot, lot less compared to what you actually think you're getting. And that's where the whole calculations and the clinical inconsistency, unfortunately, has undermined the field. So that's a really, really important point. Yeah, and again, it's not a safety factor. It's just more of an integrity or like, as a consumer, you're, you're just not getting what you paid for. And so I'll tell you what I've been doing, Dr. Arani. I've been getting all of our products third-party tested, and any new product we introduce is being third-party tested for its light irradiance. And, and part of that uh, measurement process is also the light spectra. So, so, it, so it verifies the nanometers for, for red and near-infrared, but most importantly to me, it verifies the light irradiance of our devices. So I guess that's what I have decided to do as far as setting the new standard. Um, whether other companies want to follow suit or not, I don't know. But I think if the consumer is educated and, and they vote with their dollars, eventually other companies are going to have to follow suit. And again, the whole point is not for me calling out companies for the sake of me versus them. It's, it's never that. It's about let's raise the standard of the entire industry because that's the only way it's going to move forward in a positive direction efficiently. And so I'm glad to hear, I didn't know this, that, that uh, there are things underway like you're mentioning in uh, West Virginia and hopefully Buffalo soon to have products. Th- it sounds like it would basically be third-party testing, correct? Absolutely. And it would be endorsed by people who understand PBM. So there is that confidence. You can get any light device tested. There are lots of underwriter UL labs that will do this testing, especially electrical safety and you know light output is not very difficult to test. But they don't understand the concepts of how PBM is being performed, right? What is the service irradiance and how much time and how much effort. So uh, we think we can do a better job. Unfortunately, no one else is doing it. So we had to actually pick up the uh, the requirement and actually set this up. And it, it is officially launched. So there is actually a website, PBM Foundation. If you go online, you can find it. And they are accepting, you know, uh, 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 clients, I guess, to to start doing it. And the and the motivation here is very exactly what you said. If it says it's doing so much irradiance, it should be doing it, right? Otherwise, everything else, uh, including treatment and calculations, all of that is going on. So that's all going to be undermined by the fact that you don't use the right uh, uh, the tool. Agreed. What What is the company called? I know you said pbmorganization.com. Is that correct? PBM Foundation. Foundation. My, my apology. And so are they also testing, let's say, EMFs? Because that's become an issue in this ever-growing non-native EMF world we live in. And, and some of the top red light therapy companies on the market, they integrate Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, which continues to baffle me because it kind of con- contradicts or is a juxtaposition to the health promoting benefit you're trying to instill with red light therapy. But but regardless, is, is this testing that you're talking about, are they going to test for EMFs considering that's, that's an issue, especially people in the red light therapy world, al- alternative health, energetic healing, they're aware of EMFs and, and kind of the negative consequences? Absolutely. So they would be, and they haven't yet because they haven't had a request so far. But I think that's definitely the direction we are going. So I actually run a whole conference track on directed energies and uh, directed energy therapeutics, to be very specific. And and we absolutely look into RF, ultrasound, shockwave, as well as light. And of course, the big question we get asked is, is there synergy or are they going to be antagonistic, right? Or are they going to interfere with each other? Especially with bone healing, we know that low level, uh, low power ultrasound is actually very effective for um, improving bone healing. And can we combine that with PBM has been a big question. The other thing we often get is uh, hyperbaric oxygen, HBO, and whether it would be synergistic with light treatments. And there are several now, I think, that I don't know what the right term is, but they are like HBO chambers that have lights in them. Mm. And they are actually of a specific wavelength now. 
So are they actually interfering or improving your response is a key question, and I get asked often. So uh, absolutely, I think we are open. I think they are open. The PBM Foundation is open to requests for testing other devices, other directed energy devices, and they would definitely absolutely do it. So, so is this something, the PBM Foundation, is this something where either uh, like me, a company, and or a consumer, let's say they have a product and they want their product tested, is that something you're saying can be done? Absolutely. Okay. So you just sign up on that and there's an online form to fill out and a phone number if you want to call someone. And they would actually route it. So they don't actually do the testing. They route it to different uh, labs that will actually do the testing. But they could, gotcha. they actually assimilate the reports and then uh, look for it specifically with PBM expertise to ensure that it is actually doing what it says it's supposed to be doing. Gotcha. No, that's good to know. And we'll leave the link to that PBM Foundation uh, in, in the show notes. Before we leave this topic, is there anything else companies like BioLite could be doing right now other than this third-party testing to create consumer confidence and just full transparency about the product that's been offered? But I think one of the biggest things that we could benefit from companies like yours as well as the field in general is to make specific claims and make the specific information available. Like this podcast, I think, is a really good forum where people will listen and hopefully follow up on some of the evidence. And they can find that, you know, for neck pain and for back pain uh, and for pain in your mouth or your knee, we would need slightly different. It could be the same device, but it would need to be used slightly differently. So this concept of light as a drug or photoceutical, I think, uh, and, a, and a prescription, right, a prescription and a diagnosis. So start treating it like a regular medical therapy, I think, would be a big step forward in consistency and rigor in the field. So I think that that's something that we hope more and more people like you're doing will follow suit. What would that look like more specifically, Dr. Arani? Are you saying synthesize the research, let's say, on a given for a given condition and then provide or have some sort of protocol, again, based on the research? And kind of just build out this library of all these different conditions and how they're treated and proper dosage. And of course, that's dependent on an accurate light irradiance. So that's kind of the caveat right now in the world we live. But but that's basically what you're saying is we need to develop a basically a global library almost of sorts of photobiomodulation and all of its benefits and really a protocol, which to the point of this entire conversation, red light therapy is very lenient, yet you still need to be specific if you're trying to treat something specific and even within, let's say, Alzheimer's or thyroid health. It's going to be a little general even now, but it'll just continue to get fine-tuned over time as more and more research comes out. Is that kind of the direction? But given, the, given the popularity of this treatment and the availability of this treatment, it's only if you could come together and make a large database like you're suggesting that, you know, I use this particular device. So everyone has different red lights, right? So if I use this particular red light and I did this much treatment, I saw a benefit. Yep. Even if we start documenting that, forget the controlled clinical research, which will take years for every every different disease. But people are benefiting right now. So if we came together and made this large database where we are actually depositing this treatment, this device, and this is the outcome, we will very, very quickly, within a matter of years, I think within a year or two, we'll have enough data from individual, even between red lights, different red lights, we will actually know which protocol is more effective, let's say, for back pain. Right, so we can solve one problem at a time. That would be really good, and that's in, that's where the industry has to lead. It's not something that we as academicians would have to do, you know, multi-center placebo-controlled randomized clinical trials. But as uh, as end users, as stakeholders in the field, if if the industry comes together 
And NM companies already have their own protocol, like Thor has its own protocol. Sumus has a really nice database of protocols. I think Aspen also has one. So each individual company, a multi-radius definitely has one. So there are different companies that have been doing, you know, some academic research, but also user-based feedback. And if we could do this on a global scale, I think we would benefit significantly from that. Yeah, you make many great points. And actually, a lot of this I've been thinking about as well is how to de- develop some type of global database. Because to your point, research, while it's amazing and there's a lot of it coming out, it is slower moving. But if we can have people using the devices on a daily basis consistently and they're providing information, I mean, that's extremely valuable and it'll just move the industry forward much quicker. So yeah, I love exactly what you're talking about. I know we're getting short on time, but I do want to touch on the article uh, that you sent to me. Uh, just a couple of days ago that that was accepted only a couple of months ago, and and it's entitled Use of Either Transcranial or Whole Body Photobiomodulation Treatments Improves COVID-19 Brain Fog. And so I'd love for you to just break that down quickly, the study itself and and what you found. Yeah, so uh, that was a very exciting study, again, done at West Virginia with Dr. Uh, Bob Bowen, Robert Bowen. He was the lead investigator, and I assisted him with that. This was done because of the increasing incidence of brain fog and long COVID or post-COVID situations. And patients came to us with, you know, general fatigue, a feeling of uh, non-wellness and and uh, and, and uh, interference with their normal uh, brain functions, right? So they can't concentrate, they have trouble focusing, and they can't work, and they can't watch TV and all those more factors. So we initially thought that by doing a helmet and then comparing it to something, right? So comparing it to a whole body treatment, because they have all these other symptoms, uh, we would get dramatically different results. And surprisingly enough, we didn't. So both the bed and the helmet actually perform pretty well for both the symptoms, both uh, systemic symptoms, uh, like, you know, uh, body fatigue and other measures that we have reported, but also brain fog. So we thought the helmet will work better versus the bed, but the bed performed equally well. So then the question becomes, then what are we doing differently with those? Because you're putting a lot more LED energy in the bed compared to a helmet. And again, the helmet, we adjusted the dose so that they are similar, not the same, but they are similar in terms of the wavelength and the amount of energy distribution. Remember, even if you put a person in the bed, they have a lot more body surface area. So if we start looking at how much energy per uh, biological tissue response, then we seem to come up with similar numbers. So even though it is not intuitive, a bed obviously yeah, yeah. Gotcha. compared to a helmet, but if you put the right energy in the right place, you will actually get similar responses. Wild. And again, this is specific to brain fog via COVID-19. Was the thought process with whole body maybe activating the immune system and getting benefits that way? You're still getting the brain with, with the bed, correct? Whereas with the helmet, you're kind of treating the direct area, which like if you had a bum shoulder, you're going to treat the shoulder directly, but you could surely get benefits treating the, the body systemically because there's inflammation systemically and uh, so on and so forth. But but interesting, nonetheless, that you found both treatments, again, a whole body photobiomodulation bed or just a helmet and you got similar results. So very fascinating. Are there going to be any follow-up studies based on what you found here? Yep, absolutely. So to just to reiterate that point, in, in, in animal and in lab settings where we can do very, very controlled studies. We can create a lesion in the brain, right? Where Parkinson's is a good example. You can inject a toxin and create Parkinson's in an animal model with ethical approval, obviously. And um, you can see that if you treat the brain with the light, 
the symptoms improved dramatically. So we know that in Parkinson's disease, photobiomodulation works really well with transcranial treatment. Interestingly, they covered the, uh, this is a, a work from Jonathan Lowell's group in Australia, and he very convincingly showed that if you cover the head of the animal with, you know, silver foil so that it's completely masked and treat the entire body of the animal, that the animal still loses its, uh, gets the benefit and uh, all its uh, Parkinson's symptoms are reduced, showing us that the light energy per surface area is more important than the precise location. If you do have, going back to your example, that uh, if you have a shoulder injury and you know what you're treating, obviously we would like to treat that. But it will, if we were not able to identify where exactly that lesion is, uh, it would still you would still benefit from getting a whole body treat. So interesting, very very cool. Well, Doctor Arani, again, I appreciate your time. As always, I, I come away from these conversations just fully illuminated. I guess pun intended with with all the information and insights you bring. Because again, coming straight from the photobiomodulation research expert himself. Any last words or thoughts you have uh, before before we sign off here? Yeah, I, I, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for be calling me in again. I enjoyed this conversation and. I'm sure there's a lot of interest in the different applications of uh, red light treatment and photobiomodulation. And I think the more awareness that we bring to the general public and uh, manufacturers who are actually trying to make these devices, they're trying to help people by making these devices. But I think more importantly, if they look at where the research is leading, they would make better devices and make better protocols. So I think there is a, this, it is the time to actually collaborate and make a larger you know, consensus group that will move the field forward rather than, you know, marketing hype. So I hope more people join you and have the same mindset that you have, that we want to help the patients in the maximum possible way. Well, I couldn't agree more, and, and I appreciate that. And I think we're in an exciting time now where red light therapy and photobiomodulation research is, is basically at an all-time high, and I think it's going to only grow. So if we can just uh, find it within ourselves to, like you said, collaborate, um, man, where this place could be in, in a year or two or three is, is, is going to be mind-blowing. But um, I appreciate your time and energy. I appreciate what you do with the research because it's, it's, it's the researchers that are identifying and illuminating what uh, the, the power of photobiomodulation. So thank you again. And I'm sure we'll have another fun conversation in about 365 days. <laughs> so I'll be excited to see what the new research says then. But for Dr. Praveen Arani, this is Dr. Mike Belkowski signing off another exciting episode of The Red Light Report. You guys have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening to The Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.